Welcome to You Hear It First, an unofficial, unfiltered history of MTV News. I'm Benjamin Wagner. For much of its 36 years, MTV News was where young people everywhere heard their music, movie, political, and pop culture news first. And from 1996 to 2014, I had a front row seat. Whether covering the latest music video, blockbuster, or presidential campaign, MTV News was a laboratory for experimentation and a place where rules were made to be judiciously broken. These are the stories behind the stories from the people who told the stories. This is season one of You Hear It First. For a few years in the late 90s, Robert Mancini and I were the first two staffers into the MTV News offices every morning, tasked with writing, producing, and publishing half a dozen stories to mtvnews.com before the television news meeting even began. At the peak of his 12 years at MTV News, Robert oversaw daily news content and staff across TV, online, podcasts, and video on demand. He wrote years of daily news articles and briefs, plus VMA pre-shows and specials like a presidential dialogue with Barack Obama and MTV News all up in the Grammys. Robert is one of the best writers I know, and I've been begging him to write his memoir for as long as I can remember. Here now, in lieu of that, is Robert's MTV News origin story from road tripping with eight guys in a four-passenger Datsun to see GNR at Pocono Raceway to playing straight man to Diamond David Lee Roth himself, with rest stops along the way featuring Foo Fighters, Minnie Paul, Ozzy Osbourne, Lemmy, Pink Floyd, Chewbacca, and many, many more. Listen on. managed to come in as a wide-eyed kid yeah. from the Rust Belt who had watched The Week in Rock for years and years and years in high school and was hired as you were by the guy who produced more episodes of that show than anyone else, which is mind-blowing. If you had told me that when I was in high school, that would have been science fiction. I was like, there's no way, there's no way on earth that I'm going to work with these people, that I'm going to make it there. And I did. I still can't believe it. There were so many just unlikely moments. Again, things that felt like science fiction, things that felt like somehow I had slipped through a wormhole <laughs> in like eighth grade and found myself in a room with the people who were like pinned up in my locker. And as, as a guy who grew up into hard rock and metal to be able to interview, you know, everyone from the original lineup of Black Sabbath to ACDC yeah. to Judas Priest to David Lee Roth, which I know is a story you remember well, just mind-blowing. Being the resident expert for the longest time who could speak Ozzy the best and translate Ozzy Osbourne for the rest of the team when they would say, what, is it, what did he say in that soundbite? And then I could explain it to everybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, totally. Fi- like, like finally, it was like a home for that ridiculous like knowledge and skill set that I had growing up. It, it was honestly, and I've said this a few times, it was just the most... Uh, important and formative 12 years of my life. And also just something that still I I pinch myself at the experiences that we had. And I pinch myself at the relationships that we were able to make because it was just such an extraordinary group of people there. You pointing out that it felt like science fiction reminds me the degree to which I've now normalized it inappropriately. Like you're right. Like I mean, I grew up like you watching Loader and then to get high in his office, you know, you're just like, how'd this happen? Give me a little bit more color on the sort of adolescence that primed you for MTV News. 
I was not a child of means growing up. And so the allure of 15 albums for a penny was too good to pass up. Uh, So there would be these um, uh, record clubs. And the big advertising was always, you know, 15 albums for a penny and you could check off all the albums that you wanted. Literally, you'd tape a penny with a card, (laughs) send it in, and you'd get like a box, a stack full of like Men at Work and Duran Duran and all the stuff that you checked off. And so, you know, that was, um, even in like grade school, I I was like really obsessing over popular music, Uh, holding up my cassette player to the TV to record songs off of the television and to do the same off the radio because that's the way that technology worked back then or didn't. Yeah. So the artists early on were all the things that were kind of huge in the the early 80s. A lot of, again, Duran Duran and um, Men at Work and Huey Lewis in the News. Yeah. Who, and I think it's a soft spot for you yeah. too. All, everything you've said, yeah. In that, at that time, all of a sudden MTV arrived. And at a very like like early in its life cycle it showed up somehow on our cable system. I know that it sort of like slowly grew in different pockets and in different markets, but we had it pretty early on and I remember a Tom Petty video was the first thing and we turned it on and it was the first thing that I saw and was just mesmerized and you would sit there for like hours. There wasn't a search bar on the right-hand side where you could pick something else yeah. if you didn't like what was what was on. You would explore because you were waiting for the next thing. You wanted to see what was next and what was next. So you would sit through songs and videos that you might not ordinarily be attracted to. Then into middle school, really gravitating toward everything with guitars. And that was when bands that were coming out of the Sunset Strip kind of came to dominate my life. And so it was Motley Crue and Rat and Poison and Van Halen and ACDC and, um, and Judas Priest. They were all over the walls of my bedroom. They were posters and shots ripped out of Metal Edge magazine and Circus and, you know, all of these things that we'd, we'd run down to the newsstand to buy these and uh, obsess over the pictures. And also that and MTV were the only um, connections other than the music itself that we had to them because we were in a very remote area. You had to drive uh, three plus hours to go to a concert of any size. Which would be what, Pittsburgh, Harrisburg? The closest market that got anything would be the Wilkes-Barre Scranton area. Gotcha, yeah. Where they would get acts at the um, at the Pocono Raceway. Yeah, wow. And so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> or we'd drive all the way down to Philly and go to like the Spectrum. We went to the Pocono Raceway to see Guns N' Roses open for Aerosmith. And then oh. left after Guns N' Roses was over because we were like, eh, totally. whatever. You know, they blew the doors <laughs> off. We don't need to stick around for Aerosmith. Uh, <laughs> We drove there to see Motley Crue and, you know, you'd, you'd pile eight guys in a car that seats four yeah. and schlep the whole way out there. And then you'd come back the same night. You know, this wasn't like, it required a dedication, you know, and a real commitment to to get out to see a band play live. For sure, yeah. So having grown up in this very isolated area where music then kind of became everything. It became escape. Yeah. You know, it, it became literally like the Star Wars universe. You know, these characters were, sort yeah. of, um, you know, larger than than life and, and unrealistic. It clearly sat with me and and kind of burned in me. And and I, I remained obsessed with music and pop culture then and, and went to college. And, um, you know, while I grew up in a very small town in the middle of Pennsylvania, where I went to college was not that much larger but it was at least closer to Philly. So suddenly we could go to shows 
And, you know, this was the 90s and Soundgarden was coming through Lancaster and playing the Chameleon Club and things like that. So there was this great immersion and, and explosion. Suddenly live music was a lot more accessible. And what was emerging at the time was so invigorating and powerful and everything that I was looking for. So I got more and more obsessed with with music and always from earliest days, from kindergarten on, always was writing. I was always writing. Always, always, always. In a way, as unlikely as the MTV News thing was, it was also weirdly inevitable. Like, like writing and writing about music always felt like it was a thing that I was going to be drawn to and that I could do if only there was a way to actually do it and make a career out of it, which seemed, you know, the practicality of it all seemed unlikely. Graduated from college, was writing for a number of different newspapers. Remember newspapers? <laughs> they, were, they were great. <laughs> was writing for newspapers in and around uh, my area in Pennsylvania. Started my own magazine. We were more than breaking even in less than a year, which is- nice, Which was called? It's called 13 Magazine. Ah. As in, we were the 13th generation, which was like a thing when Gen yeah, X Yeah, dude, like that's awesome. Well, it's us. also great, right? Because it's unlucky and kind of comes with superstition and all the vibe around that. Kind of perfect for me, it's right? Great. Like, yeah, we're gonna, it's great. It's <laughs> great. Yeah, we're going to pick the most potentially self-dooming title we can come up with. That's, <laughs> that's me. Right. It's a great, it's a great title. <laughs> We were doing well, but the personalities associated with it weren't doing well. So yeah. we all kind of started to implode a little bit. And my dear friend, Carl Heitmuller, who I want to mention by name, who I was working with on the magazine and who also uh, I was working with at an independent record store in Lancaster called BBC Records, rest in peace, legendary spot. He said, hey, I'm going to move to New York. Do you want to go? This had been his dream for years. You know, it's kind of always to move to New York, be a part of the energy here. Me. Uh, I hadn't really considered it. And I, I think literally all the thought I put into it was, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Me too. As, as yeah, like every great decision right. in my life. Mm, okay. <laughs> so we move up here, you know, I knew, well, if you want to be a writer, that's kind of the place to do it. So, you know, I became the 2.7 millionth writer to come to New York that year. Right. Rejection, 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 you know, I was applying for everything that I could find, every remotely editorial position, nothing. You know, I was, I remember applying for like an editorial assistant position with a trade publication for the petroleum industry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and didn't even, you know, get an interview for that. And you're just reaching for anything. And I happened to be out one night. How? I don't know. Cause I was out of money, but out anyway. And a friend of Carl's, um, actually Carl's brother, uh, Kenny, was in this great band called Suddenly Tammy. Ah, right. They were on Warner Brothers for a bit. Fantastic, kind of jazz-influenced trio. And they had been profiled by MTV News. Ah. And the producer who produced that piece stayed in touch with a band, a woman named Carol Candelaro. I thought that too, yeah. Yep, yep. And we were out one night and she was like, so what are you doing or trying to do. And I was like, I don't know, I'm kind of a writer. And she's like, kind of, or are you? And I was like, yes, because I, I was very yeah. Carol. And totally. I said, yeah. uh, well, I mean, I guess if someone will pay me to do it, then I am. And I sent her my resume and she literally, she went into, I don't know if I mentioned this to you. She went into Michael Alex's office because at the time, Michael Alex, the man who eventually hired myself yeah. and you, was beginning to 
to build out his plan for the launch of this thing that would be MTV News Online. And he needed a writer. And Carol walked into his office and said, I don't know anything about this guy and I don't know if he's any good, but here, and put my resume down on his desk, right? My resume had a little caricature that Carl, who's an artist, had drawn, will picture me up in the corner. And I think that caught Michael's eye because Michael likes weird yeah. stuff. And then all of my clips were about like Man or Astro Man and the Galaxy Trio totally. and, and the Mono Man and all these like garage bands. He liked the tone and the, the I think the energy of my language. And I think he liked the fact that I put a caricature of myself in the corner of the resume. So he was like, all right, I'll bring this guy in. And so he brought me in and I, I mean, I'd been here for six months at that point with no job. I was out of money. I had to borrow bus fare from Carl so that I could get to oh, the wow, office for the interview. For the interview. Yeah. And, and Michael said, well, let's give this a try. So uh, we'll, we'll do a two week tryout. Um, freelance come in each day and, and you can write for, you can write for on air. I had never done anything in television. I didn't even intern at like a local station. I, I had no idea how to write for television. I said, sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, cause what else am I going to do? Like stay on the couch and watch Quincy. Wow. So I then still had to borrow bus fare so that I could get to that job every day. And I remember my first day coming into the office, the morning meeting, which is like a thing of legend in MTV news, right? Like the morning meeting, typically at that point led by the man who was running the news operation, Michael Shore, yeah. who is iconic. Oh yeah, I love Michael yeah. Shore. But this day, the news meeting, the morning meeting was held in Dave's office, Dave Cyrulnik, a man who, if anyone who's listening to this and you don't know, you've probably seen Dave mentioned, he had a, a big piece about MTV news uh, recently. I think he did for maybe the Hollywood reporter. It was held in his office because Madonna had given birth that day. Oh, man. We're all crammed into a room that's too small for us. And it's everybody who works for MTV News crammed into this space, including like Kurt's there. And Kurt's never at the morning. Yeah. Meeting, you know? I don't think I ever saw him at one. That's amazing. No. Day one, yeah. Madonna's. Yeah. And of course, with Madonna, of course he's yeah. going to be there. Well, I'm, I'm just like, oh my God, if I wasn't intimidated before, I'm, I'm just going to like quietly Homer Simpson my way back into the bushes and disappear. <laughs> this is terrifying. You know, I certainly wasn't the guy that they gave that story, but I, you know, I was pitching. I was like, Hey, I saw that fishbone announced some dates, you know, uh, pitching little things. And so I got those in and uh, you would literally, you'd write your, your copy, print it out, take it in to Michael Shore's office. And he would, he would read it. He would read it in front of you. So there's another pit in my stomach. Like I have to walk in, I hand him my copy. He's going through it and he goes, all right, good. Not bad. Maybe I can actually do this. Yeah. And then of course I, you know, I see the final scripts after they come through rewrite and after Kurt, because Kurt at that point was final rewrite, obviously on all of, all of his on-air copy and nothing, nothing of what I had written <laughs> was in there. Right. right. I mean, the facts were there. <laughs> right, but totally. he and then my, on day three, I think it was day three or four, I did whatever my piece was about like, you know, Reverend Horton Heat or some, something. <laughs> totally. right? And then when I see the final script, there was like a phrase. I tried to do something clever and Kurt kept it. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is it. Like, like, oh my God, this is incredible. Maybe I can actually do this. And then that was the day that they, that Michael hired me, that Michael said, oh, Michael Alex great. said, we'd like you to stay on. That was my in, my terrifying, terrifying way in. 
So at what point does he be, is he like, all right, we're going to launch this thing now and here's how we're going to do it. And here's the people who are doing it and come sit in this weird fishbowl or whatever. So this is October of 96. And Michael's plan then is to launch MTV News Online. It's first ever original content digital presence in January of 97. Right. So for two months, I'm just writing for on air. Certainly working very closely with Michael Shore and, you know, uh, Rhonda Markowitz and Randy yeah. Gallon and yeah. uh, Josh Tyrangel and all, and, and yeah. Andrea, Andrea. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. like, oh my God, all these amazing people. Right. And just trying to like learn everything that I could and, and, and soak up as much as I could during that time. Also trying to like work with Michael and get a handle on what this thing was going to be in January. Are there designs? Is there a mock-up? Is there, I don't even I didn't know what a mock-up was at the time. I, was, I think I said, is there something I can look at? Right. And he said, no, we want real reporting and two stories every two hours. Oof. First posting at 8 a.m., yeah. the last posting at 6 p.m. So I knew that come January, me and this other um, green, young, fresh-faced uh, fellow that they had uh, hired named Ben Wagner, uh-huh. um, we're going to be coming in at about 6.30 each day so that we'd be re- we'd have two stories ready to go for 8 a.m. And I knew that it was going to skew more um, more print than the work that I had been doing right. for on air, but also that we wanted it to retain MTV News Voice. Before we launched this thing, the MTV News Digital Presence was only, there were literally transcripts of the on-air news brief script copy in the AOL keyword MTV section of AOL, right? right. That was it. Yeah. And it literally would still say, hi, this is Kurt Loader with MTV yeah. News at the top. And it was in all caps because that's the way you'd plug it into the teleprompter. In doing something new, we were defining or redefining the scope of what MTV News paid attention to. Yeah. Because we had, I mean, we had our own bandwidth as, as individuals, you and I, but we had unlimited real estate and we weren't picking the three things in a day that we could fit into those news brief slots, right? We had room for, you know, 12 to 16 or as much as we could crank out in a day. So suddenly we were covering bands and artists and eventually later issues that weren't being covered on air or that there was not the real estate to cover on air. And I think it was hard for um, some of the, some of our on-air partners to kind of get their heads around that at first, but then eventually it became like this haven. It was the place where they all wanted to play because yeah. there was more freedom and more space to, to do the kinds of pieces that you wanted to do. Like, you know, like Kurt wanted to, the day that Kurt Loader was like, can I do something for online? Cause yeah. I, have something I want to say and there's not a, a place to say it on air was mind blowing. Yeah. Like, like that was okay. We, we made it. We turned it into a valuable enough platform that, that the people who we respected yeah. want to come and play on it. Yeah. But we physically started, I was in a cubicle outside of Tabitha Soren's office. I remember I was across the hall. Um, also incredibly intimidating. Yeah. So totally. like, here, you're going to sit here. Okay. Again, as a fan, as someone who grew up, like, like, watching these people. Um, it was wild to me to be parked there. But as we were launching, Michael got a bit of real estate, got a, what, what had been a, I don't even know if it was a full conference room, but it was a little 
interior room that had a big window uh, on the hallway that looked out on the rest of, of MTV News. And that became like this weird little playground or yeah. clubhouse. Yeah. You know, we called it the fishbowl because everybody could just look through the glass at all of the weird creatures inside. People would eventually just come by to see what was up and what are you writing about and what's going on in here? And this is where you're playing all the cool music. And yeah. like it became like in the place of misfits and weird, we were this cool little nugget of extra weirdness, I guess. We were this fun little playhouse. And I mean, it certainly didn't feel fun all the time, but yeah. you know, it, <laughs> 6 a.m. 6 a.m. It was not fun. No, but the people around us who, you know, who, who, when we came in, we had so much respect for, and I think we're really trying to like win over and trying to live up to what they had done with MTV news. Yeah. Suddenly they were coming around because they wanted to see what we were doing, which was just wild, just absolutely wild to me. Yeah. It still is. Hey, it's Benjamin. In our post-pandemic world of hybrid work, heightened performance expectations, global unrest, and economic flux, there is a lot to manage, and most of us need all the help we can get. My company, Essential Industries, is a boutique coaching and consulting firm specializing in individual and organizational strategy, communications, and collaboration. If you, your team, or organization need help creating, innovating, communicating, or collaborating effectively, Facing uncertainty with competence or leading meaningful transformation, visit benjaminwagner.com or email me at benjaminbwagner at gmail.com right now. I'd love to help. Now back to the show. Give me um, the first moment where you were like, for the kid from PA, this ain't bad. Well, I think it's important to note that literally every day was a, <laughs> what the fuck's going on? How did I get here? That's awesome. Moment. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Just, I mean, walking through Times Square, yeah. which I think when we started was still yeah. a, a little, a little, a little jagged around the edges. Yeah. And then by the time we left, turned into to Disney World. Totally. Yeah. We had been conducting our own interviews for, for online content, but you know, th those were editorial interviews. So those could be phoners. And we would occasionally do uh, on, on in-person interviews, but we at that point didn't even have, we didn't have cameras. We didn't have the infrastructure to, to capture video interviews. So we'd work a lot with the on-air interviews. And eventually I was asked to do interviews that would do double duty, that would be used for on-air content, as well as pieces that we could mine for, for online content. And it kind of eased me into it. I think that I got a lot of the interviews that were sort of favors to record labels, right? you know, like artists that didn't. It's my entire really Rolling Stone anywhere. career. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of my first um, real, oh my God, how did I get here moments in interviews was when David Lee Roth came through. We used to have these like weekly shoot edit meetings where we determined what we were doing with our crews, who are we interviewing, what pieces are we producing and who's going to do it. They're kind of determining assignments in there too. I was like, David Lee Roth, I will, yes, thousand percent. Give me David Lee Roth. I'm, I'm, I'm a Van Halen fan. Let me do this. And he blows onto the set, like, like the Tasmanian devil. And, you know, there's like scarves and a vest and he's everything that I want him to be. You know, he's like, he is, he's vintage Dave. And he sits down 
And again, because I am off camera, I am not part of the, the show of this interview. I need to ask my question, then be quiet and not step on his sound bites. That's the way that it works when you are doing an off-camera interview, right? So Dave is, I mean, it's the Dave show, man. It's vaudeville, it's Vegas, it's him just like joke after joke and jumping out of his chair and doing all this stuff. And I had by that point done enough of these interviews that I had, I thought, perfected the art of silent reactions. Right. Right. You learn how to laugh in a way that shows someone that you're laughing, but you're not making noise because you don't want to step on the soundbite, right? So, but that's not what Dave is looking for. Dave like wants you to be on the floor rolling yeah. and howling. And so <laughs> about halfway through the interview, he sees that, he, that he's not getting enough out of me, right? So, so he goes, whoa, whoa. and he sits up in sort of a mock, like prim and proper way and straightens a tie that he's not wearing, you know? And says, oh, sorry, sorry, your honor. Sorry, your honor. And he starts to call me your honor through the rest of the interview. <laughs> we got a lot of great stuff, but he just kept like poking me because I was too stiff for him. And then finally, when, when the cameras were down, I was like, dude, I promise you inside I was howling, but I can't, they don't want to hear me laughing on this thing. I'm sorry. Like I had to apologize to the guy afterwards because I felt I wasn't giving him the energy that he was looking for. I realized very early on that, um, you know, all of these people who are in this room, the lighting guys and the, you know, and the folks in the control room, they aren't there for me. Yeah. This, you know, so I need to, I need to facilitate good stuff out of the person who is in the other chair. Yeah, totally. Right? Yeah. I've seen this a lot in writers over the years and, and it's probably even something that um, in an earlier stage of my career, that I had to, to learn to wrestle with. But like you see writers who th there's an instinct to want to impress the person yeah, that you're interviewing. Totally. Right? That serves you. It doesn't serve the interview. It doesn't serve the content, yeah. you know, uh, particularly in this type of setting where you're um, you're off camera, you're not part of it and you're trying to get good stuff out of your, out of your interview subject. I remember I went in and I sat down in the studio and an Aussie comes in. And the entire time I'm just, I'm trying to focus on the fact that I have a job to do and not the fact that I'm sitting across from Ozzy fucking Osborne. Yeah. Like, you know, a, a guy who, you know, whose cassettes I burned through like in senior high, you can't get caught up in that. I mean, if anything, I probably over, I probably overcorrected. I probably was your honor most of the time in these interviews. But I, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be fawning. I didn't want to turn into the Chris Farley show. Totally. Right, know? right, right. So, so I, I reined a lot of that in. And it's worth noting, you were gathering material that was going to be used all over the place, not just radio, but also like, let's say year in rock, right? Like you're getting those one sheeters where it's like, we need a bunch of artists talking about their favorite salad or whatever, you know, like everything had a lot of, you had to do a lot of business with almost everybody. And invariably too, you are, you're scheduled for a 2.30 to 3 p.m. interview. Right. They show up at 2.45 <laughs> totally. and tell you they have a hard out at 2.55 and you've got to get all that stuff. Then there's the arithmetic you're doing in your head. Okay, like what are the what are the three pressing yeah. daily news priorities? What is the biggest 
multi-artist package priority that we have? And then what are the other sort of bits of business that we might need to tack on at the end if we still have time? You and I could talk, we could do a 20 hour podcast and you'd leave stories on the floor. Do you know, it's pretty tough to do 12 years in an hour. It is. Yeah. yeah. Especially like, again, like the 12 years that meant the most to us, I think personally and professionally, we could spend an hour on the mechanics and the, how we did the job, all of that stuff about how you're interviewing. We could spend an hour on just stories. We could spend an hour on the people who we worked with and we loved like, and it still wouldn't be enough. Yeah. There's a lot to discuss about the legacy that I don't think any of us appreciated at the time. You know, I mean, obviously the, you know, the news of its closure meant a lot to me in the way that, you know, when, when, when they literally like closed my alma mater, my high school, uh, I, yeah, I felt like, yeah. oh, geez, wow. But to see what that coverage meant, to see what representation in the stories that we told and the people who were telling them what that meant. Um, it, it's humbling. And we never took that platform for granted it, it was because I think we were on the other side of it because we grew up as fans and we knew what it meant to the people who were watching, who, who were then uh, navigating to the site. The thing I feel most proud to be affiliated with is to your point, the representation and the scope of, I always tell, when I explain it to people now, especially like, let's say, you know, millennial or younger audiences, I'm like, Remember, there's no other source of information for people under the age of 20. Um, And that it's not just about music or movies, but it's also, you know, youth culture, politics, what's happening to kids in schools, you know, what it's like to be a kid, a young person. And and there was no other place for that. That's largely a referendum on Srolnik. Dave's, you know, like eight feet tall and has a voice like James Earl Jones. You know, it, it really like... He, he commands yeah. a, a room. He has a presence, but also then, you know, doesn't misuse that. He's not bombastic in any way. He was, he was like, you know, he was an oak, mm. you know, he, he was like this, this incredibly sturdy figure. My favorite Dave story uh, is from the early days. I remember I was walking through the halls and Dave wandered by and, and it, it was, it must've been early spring because Dave was wearing a Mets jersey. Ah, uh, Yeah. <laughs> Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and I walked by, I don't know if I even had a conversation with Dave before this, but, um, I walked by, I said, Mets. He said, yes. He said, actually he said, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who, do, who, who, who do you like? Uh, and I said, Pittsburgh pirates, the most losing team in the history of like major league baseball. And, but somehow I am being, you know, uh, bold about it. And he did, he just nodded and walked away. And, uh, <laughs> In retrospect, that's not the best move with your your boss's boss. But, oh, well, I think that Dave, um, you saw his hand in so many things. And it was, you know, the the unique composition of that staff, both behind the, the, yeah. the camera and in the newsroom and also on camera, in the stories we were telling, in the way that we were telling them. And, and I think that that I didn't really appreciate until... I had a couple of other professional experiences afterward that um, yeah. that it is true that businesses and cultures take the shape of the people at the top. Yeah. And and that was Dave. And it was also, you know, like Tom Freston. It was also like Judy McGrath. Amazing people who were, who had vision and enthusiasm and never uh, wielded it like a weapon or anything. Yeah. They were fundamentally creatives and they were also, I think, and I would add Van into this, Van Toffler, like 
good, decent, nice, kind, thoughtful people. You felt that. You felt it every day. You really did being in that place. To your point about them and Dave being creatives, it's why we had such, um, why we had a unique composition of staff and also in the stories that we were telling. And I don't, you know, uh, how many people want to listen to two white guys talk about representation? Fair enough. But I think that it was coming from a place of wanting to tell unique stories and, and tell them uh, from interesting perspectives. And that was the natural way that we built this group and, and that we had this unique presence on camera. It never felt like, like a mandate or, or a mission or a box that a company was checking, right. right? Or even as crass as, well, we really need to hit this other target demo. There's like a sweet spot there that we aren't hitting. It wasn't that. We want to tell interesting stories in an interest in an interesting way, and, and if you're going to do that, you know, in hip hop, and if you want to do it with authenticity, you need Sway, and you need Shaheem Reed, and you need you know Jason Rodriguez and Ramon Dukes and uh, and Joseph Patel and and like all these amazing people who we worked with in the way that if you want to tell interesting stories in an interesting way and in an authentic way in video games, you get Stephen Totillo. It was just such a fantastic mix of incredibly smart people there. And, and I think that's what has kind of uh, washed over me in the wake of the, the closing of the department. And I'm ha- I just feel fortunate that I got to be around it. I always felt like I was kind of uh, adjacent to things. Mm. And, and, and that was wild and, and interesting to me. Like, you know, just being um, in the, the sweet at the Palms Hotel and Casino, at the the Vegas VMAs, <laughs> where like where where the Foo Fighters had this string of, of of guests and collaborators from like Lemmy from Motorhead to Surge from System of a Down and the guys from Mastodon and Josh from Queens of the Stone Age. It was like it was literally at that point like somebody put my iPod on shuffle. Like like yeah. that room was incredible. Just being there. One of the other hallmarks of working at that place was those holiday parties. So like, give me a visual snapshot of the like most absurd moment that you can recall from one of those things. Well, yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that the holiday party for many of the years that we were there was at what was then called the Hammerstein Ballroom, which is like a big concert venue in Manhattan and has multiple levels and balconies and stages. And the thing that everybody... I feel like the most infamous moment is the penguin. Yeah. Uh, there was a. Totally. There was literally. Do you have a picture a with room. you and a penguin, dude? No, I don't. I don't. I, thank God all of this was before like, right. you know, camera phones. Right. But there was a room full of like blocks of ice and penguins just <laughs> hanging out behind velvet ropes and a bar. So, you know. Of course. Sure. You know, the guys, the, yeah, the guys from sales or. <laughs> Swilling scotch and pouring it on some poor emperor penguin. Um, another thing that happened at the time around the holiday party that really didn't strike you till later was, first of all, yes, of course, there's a line of black cars outside and, and everybody was misusing car vouchers to get themselves home at the time. All right, great. There was also a line of ambulances. Like, I kid you not, they, they would be prepared for, well, like, you know, at least like six kids are going to way over drink at this thing yeah. and going to need some type of help. So, so that was nice. Uh, 
if I had a dollar for every time I came to work without sleeping back then, I wouldn't have needed the job, frankly. Like when I think about the woe moments, there was like doing a shoot at the Skywalker Ranch, which is like George Lucas's enormous chunk of land in Northern California and being invited into the warehouses that are his kind of personal prop archive and shooting with like the original Ark of the Covenant from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like it was just like you look over in the corner and there's the half blown up Death Star from the end of Star Wars and and there's there's a Chewbacca laying in a box. Like there was a live eight in London where the day before the concert, it's me and like 12 other people just standing in this empty field while Pink Floyd sound checks for the first time in like 20, in a quarter century in like 25 years. My my favorite moment though, honestly, was um, because I was like the hard rock guy for a bit, I would always cover one of the first dates of OzFest every summer. It just so happened for a couple of years, it was kicking off in West Palm Beach and my dad lives very close to West Palm. So I said, dad, you want to go with me to OzFest and kind of see what it's like and what I do for a living? He was all for it. He was like, yeah, so that'll be great. I'd love to see what you do. And so that was when he discovered that being backstage at a show is just kind of like, you know, being in the, the concrete bowels of an arena and yeah. uh, not super exciting. Or you're like eating a warm sandwich under a tent somewhere. Yeah. But one of the interviews that I was doing that day was with Pantera and the late, great Vinnie Paul, their drummer, who was an amazing guy, comes out of their dressing room and, and, um, their publicist introduces him to me. He says, oh, this is Robert Mancini. He goes, I know who you are, dude. I know who you are. When I see your name on a story, I know it's legit. I know it's the real deal. And this is in front of my dad, yeah. which is just like the, the greatest thing that can happen to you. And then the two of them just start talking about golf courses in the area. Like they just, they, <laughs> they suddenly they're off in a corner talking about golf courses. You know, my dad says, boy, that, that fellow's really nice. What a nice guy. He seems really sweet. 20 minutes later, they're on stage being Pantera. And my dad's like, what just happened? What happened to that guy? Between this is the the golf guy. And now he's doing this. Yeah. But it was just 12 years of that. I mean, it was, it was the Hudsucker proxy. Uh, We always talked about it, you know, like, like he felt like Norval Barnes, who somehow found himself in this bizarre world that was bigger than him. But then somehow, you know, if you can maintain your enthusiasm, you can be bigger than it. And that's, I think, what we try to do. You Hear It First, an unofficial and unfiltered history of MTV News is an essential industries podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your podcasts and visit benjaminwagner.com for more episodes and information on our creative coaching and consulting services. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.